In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, O God, glory to thee, heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of truth, who art everywhere present, and fillest all things, O treasure of a good and bestower of life. Come and dwell us, and cleanse the very stain, and save our souls, O good one. Down. The best teaching method, which a lot of the uh, universities now are teaching more and more, when you're teaching something to people, is to always use examples. So on a worldly level, whatever message someone wants to get across, whether it's good or bad, they use examples of people's lives. So, for example, as I've said before, when they were pushing uh, for abortions, which later on became a law in 1970, somewhere around there, 1973, around there in America, before that, they had a lot of shows on television, like movies, etc., all about those issues with people, showing people's lives. That is very powerful. The church has always known that reading the lives of saints, knowing the lives of the saints, is the most powerful way of getting across the message of Christianity. Unfortunately, I feel that on the secular level, like in the world, the television the movies, etc., they really do push their agenda, whatever it is. Now, for example, now the new thing is the homosexuality. Therefore, you'll notice that there will, and there will become more, more and more and more films about that. Slowly, slowly to pass the laws that they want. People who watch these things at home or at the cinema or on the computer, it really gets across what these people who produce them want. But for the Christians, for Orthodox Christians, we need to be reading Lives of Saints, which I've done a talk on this before. We need to be reading Lives of Saints, a lot of Lives of Saints, because the Lives of Saints are the Gospel in practice. When you just read the Bible... People can misunderstand what the Bible is trying to bring, what, what God's word is. People misinterpret. They just become all confused. Protestants say that well, you just read the Bible. Orthodox say that we read the Bible and we have tradition, especially in the lives of saints. So... As Orthodox Christians, we need to be reading the lives of saints as much as possible, and that's why I made that available at the back, um, because I, am, I firmly believe in that, in the lives of saints, spiritual books, but especially the lives of saints. When I did the life of Saint Xenia, the Fool for Christ, and the CD was produced, and that CD was given out to a lot of people, a lot of people said to me, after hearing the life of Saint Xenia, I became close to Saint Xenia. I felt 
kind of, I could relate to Saint Xenia. I felt this bond with Saint Xenia. I could pray more to Saint Xenia. I could honour Saint Xenia. So it's the same when you're watching these things on the television or whatever, you, or cinemas, etc. You become united, whether you know or not, with whatever you're watching. You begin to become uh, compassionate towards the person. So, for example, a woman who is pregnant and then in the movie with the music in the background, emotional, the way it's all presented, the woman doesn't want to have the child because she's too young or something like that. And then the audience looking at that together with the music in the background, because it's always got to have the music in the background, the way it's presented, it's very emotional. And then the person who's watching it says, I can see her point. Yes, I can understand that. I feel for her. Yes, abortion's okay. So whether we know it or not, these things are influencing people who watch them. We need to be influenced, those who want, of course, by the lives of saints, those who want. See, that's why orthodoxy is free. You want to follow, you don't want to follow. That's up to the person. It's not forced on them. Actually, I believe that a lot of the television, a lot of that is forced because a person who's just there could be watching something and then thinking it's something else, but then they're really pounding through what they want to get across to people. So I decided today to read the life, or parts of it, of the martyrs Adrian and Natalia. Natalie, Natalia, I don't know how, there are different ways of saying it with um, Greeks say different, the Slavs say different, Natalia. And this particular life begins during the 3rd century. Now, as we know, the Roman Empire was a pagan empire. They believed in many gods. They worshipped stone, wood, many, many gods. It's called polytheistic. It's a Greek word. Poly, meaning many. Theistic, meaning gods. So many gods. That was their religion. And their religion was very much mixed a lot with also um, satanic things and the demons would trick them because they didn't know exactly what was... Those people didn't know that they were actually worshipping. Uh, behind these idols were the demons that were inspiring them, telling them things. You know, the idols would speak, but it would be the demons, etc. So that was the religion that existed in, that, in, in those days. And that religion, the, this pagan Empire, the Roman Empire, existed um, after Christ for around 300 years. Now, many believe that the Roman Empire persecuted the Christians continually. Actually, it's not correct. It depends who was emperor, and it depends on who was the governor in areas, because these, there might have been the Caesar, but then there was all these different areas in the empire which were ruled by different people. Some of them were tolerant to Christians. So, for example, in Alexandria, in Egypt, uh, there, the Christians, even in, the, you know, in those first couple of centuries, they had churches, and they would go to church openly, publicly. But some of them were fanatical, obsessed, and they wanted to eradicate the whole of the Christian, of, of all Christians. They didn't want anyone to be Christians. 
The same thing happened during communism from 1917 in Russia to when it fell in 1991. There were times when it was worse and times when it was better. Stalin was one of the worst. However, during the Second World War, when the Germans came to attack Russia, uh, the Russians would go and greet the Germans as their liberators. They actually were happy that the Germans came because they wanted to be, the Russians wanted to be freed from the communists. And when Stalin saw that, he had to do something to get the people to fight for him, to fight the Germans so they don't come and take over. So he allowed churches to open and he allowed uh, the patriarch, I think, to be elected, and um, he allowed people to go to church, etc. So, in a way, even though he did it for evil reasons, it came out good for the Christians because they had already gone through around 30 years of really bad persecutions, 25, 30 years. So that actually was God's providence, and then the Russians became patriotic, and then they started to fight for Russia, and then, obviously, the, a lot of people believe that the war, the second that, that the Germans lost, one of the reasons is because they could not beat the Russians. The Russians were able to endure the harsh cold, and the Germans got, got caught up there, and then Hitler would send more and more troops up there, and then he, by sending more troops to Russia, then he had less troops to fight the English and Greeks and others who were fighting against them, and at the end... That whole thing fell. Everything is God's providence. So the same thing happened here. But one particular emperor, Maximian, he was really, really uh, possessed. He was a great persecutor of Christians. Wherever he would go, he would straight away make a declaration. And he would say to the people, I want all Christians that are here to be brought to me to be killed. I want you to, to tell me who are Christians. And some of the people would get scared and they would start to put in even their parents, their children, their grandparents, whoever, because they didn't want to be persecuted by the emperor. Sometimes they might have even just made up and said, oh, that person is, so, they can, so that the emperor doesn't think that they are, by dobbing someone in, by betraying someone, they would think that, well, they're not going to think I am. Maybe they even were. Maybe they, they, um, they lost it from their fear. Some of them even um, would betray Christians to the emperor just so they can get rewards, because the emperor would reward those who would betray Christians. So he went to... Uh, a city, Nicomedia, he entered the temple as was his practice. He worshipped his, his idols there. And then he commanded, as I said, all Christians to be brought to him and tortured. And those who did not betray the Christians, those who did not say where the Christians were, were also tortured, as I said before. So some people knew that in a cave somewhere there near the city, there were some Christians who were hiding and they were praying in there. And those people betrayed those Christians that were there. So what happened was that the emperor was informed and those Christians were captured. There was a number of them. 
but then the emperor would try to coerce them and say, give up your religion, don't believe in Christ. If you deny Christ, then I will give you power, I will give you rewards, etc. Some Christians did, not in this case, but some Christians did betray and said, I, I can't take the pain, I can't take the torture, and some actually said, whatever you do to me, I will never deny my Christ. I will never deny the Christian faith. Now, many of us, when we read this, we say, oh, that was a long time ago. But remember that these things happened in Russia, in other communist countries, where people were persecuted for being Christian, for being Orthodox Christians. Now, of course, there are in other countries where people are not Christian, and they are also, sorry, they're not Orthodox Christian, they could be Catholic, could be something else, even Protestants, and they are persecuted. Now, we know St. Nikolai, for example, the Serbian saint, where he says that how do we know that Orthodox is the truth? One of the, one of the ways is the fact that Orthodoxy is persecuted the most, and that is true. But let's add to that that some of these others also persecuted. If you read in the Second World War, there were Catholic priests who were even crucified because they would not deny their religion. And the Germans, some of them were, were um, sadistic. By saying that, some of you might ask, does that mean that they also have the truth? And the answer is... that uh, they don't have the full truth, but they have parts of the truth. And even those parts of the truth that they have makes the demons hateful towards them. That's not ecumenism. That's just the fact. If you read that everyone is born in the image of God, and the demons hate everyone, even an atheist, even though an atheist is close to the demons in spirit. But nevertheless, because he's created in the image of God, the demons do not like him. Even virtue, they don't like. Even when someone does a good deed, even if they're not Christian, it resembles, for the demons, it, re it resembles goodness. They don't want goodness. They don't like goodness. Some people practice um, virtue without even being Christian just because, as St. Paul says, the gospel is written in their hearts. So even if some people have never read the Bible, they actually live lives which resemble what the Christians do. But they don't have the fullness of what the Orthodox Church has. Now, you might ask, so what does that mean? They're going to be saved. Well, I don't even know if I'm going to be saved. We know, as Orthodox Christians, that if we leave the church, we're not saved. And I've said this before. We are not in the position, and it is quite satanic, to actually judge those outside of the church. God has more love than me and you. And if God is, is love, 
Therefore, he would be doing all that he can to bring those people to salvation in ways that he knows. So to say that the expression outside of the church there's no salvation applies to them or, for example, the decision of the Third Ecumenical Council which says whoever does not confess Mary as Theotokos is anathema. And some people try to apply that and say, well, that applies to the Protestants, for example, because they don't recognise the Mother of God, so they're anathema, etc. Those anathemas, which are very bad, anathema means you're cut off. But anathema means you're cut off from the church. We can't anathematise Protestants because they're not part of the Orthodox Church. Those rules don't apply to them. It applies to us as Orthodox Christians. But the demons come along and want us to look at what the Catholics are doing and what the Protestants are doing and what the Buddhists are doing and what the Jehovah's are doing and what everyone else is doing. And we're all worried about what's going to happen to them and whatever, but we're not worried about ourselves. Are we under the anathema of the Third Ecumenical Council. In other words, do we, as Orthodox Christians, confess the Mother of God as Theotokos? And some of you might say, well, I kiss the icon and therefore I am Orthodox. But it's not enough to confess the icon. It's not enough to bow down to the Mother of God. It's not enough just to sing hymns to the Mother of God. Through our life, through our spiritual life, through the grace of God, we are given the knowledge within our hearts to understand that the mother of God is Theotokos. In other words, that she gave birth not only to the human Christ, but she also gave birth to God, that, that Christ was both human, but he was also God at the same time the two natures. And a lot of us believe, I don't know, if I think that if I quiz some people about that, I think we would discover that a lot of us, maybe even myself, that we really have not penetrated into even the incarnation of Christ, which means that that God took on human flesh. Even though the whole church Everything about the church is Christ, that God became man for our salvation. And yet the Protestants do put us down because the Protestants have that as a really centre of their belief. A lot of them. Some of them don't, of course, but some of them are confused. But some of them really believe in that. But we as Orthodox, our services, if we understood the language, we would notice that basically every couple of sentences, everything is based on that dogma, that God became man. When the priest comes out with the gospel in the liturgy and he says, wisdom upright, or well, I've forgotten what, the, what they say in Slavonic, but anyway, when he comes up and with the gospel and then people come and sing, what are they singing? Oh, come, let us worship and fall down before Christ who became man, etc. It's all to do with dogma. And just going to a theological school, I remember someone said to me the other day, oh, so-and-so went and he's studying in a theological school 
and he will become a bishop. I'm sorry, but bishops are not produced in theological schools. And in the old days, bishops were chosen from the monasteries. There might have been monks who weren't even educated, but they had virtue. They were full of the Holy Spirit. But today, bishops are chosen from the theological schools. And we think that all because they learnt theology, that means that they know theology. But theology is not learnt by reading books in theory or listening to lectures. That may be a bit of a help. But the Holy Father say, a theologian is one who prays. And one who prays is a theologian. So a true theologian is someone who prays. And someone who prays is enlightened. And if they're enlightened, they will understand the teachings of the church. Those who just learn at theological schools but don't even pray, which a lot of them don't, don't even lead Christian lives, and they later on become priests or bishops, etc., that would explain the reason for today. And that's why a lot of the, some of the saints, like um, the Greek saint Philothos of Arcos, he was quite against theological schools at times because it was this thing that theological schools equal holiness, equals a person, a preparation for someone to become a priest or a bishop, etc. That's not the case. So the emperor ordered that these Christians be taken to the tribunal there and that their names be recorded. And one of the officials, his name was Adrian, he was wondering to himself, why are these people willing to die? Why are these people willing to go through the harshest torture when all they've got to do is say, I don't believe in Christ and burn incense to the idols. And that made him wonder. So he asked them, obviously secretly, he wouldn't ask in front of the emperor, but he asked them, what do you expect? What, what makes you to do this? And then the, um, he says, I adjure you by God, by your God, for whose sake you have suffered so, tell me in good conscience, what waiteth you from your God for such torment? You must be expecting to get something to endure such torture. What is it? What is this hope that you've got? And then the holy martyrs began to answer him and says, it's just incomprehensible for words. You cannot put words to what awaits those who are saved in heaven. The rewards, the blessedness, the joy, etc. And that part there from Holy Scripture which says, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. In other words, no eye has seen, no ear has heard exactly what will be given to those who are saved on the last day. When Adrian heard this, he walked out the middle and said to those who were writing down the names of the martyrs there, and he says, record my name as well. I also am a Christian. And he said, I want to die for Christ. 
with them together. The scribes, those who were writing these things down, got shocked that one of their own actually said that and ran and told the emperor what had happened and told him, look, you know, the, the great official, because he was, he was an official, he was like he had a high position in the Roman Empire. He says that he's a Christian as well, and the actual um, emperor became enraged because it was embarrassing for him. Like even in communist times, if you read that life of St. Uh, Luke, he was a surgeon. That was an, that, that, that's an excellent life, if you haven't read it. We should actually get it to the, for the back there. St. Luke was a surgeon. He was one of the greatest surgeons in Russia. But he was Christian. He was orthodox. And every time he would do operations, and he would pray. He wanted to have icons in the surgery. And that made the communists very uncomfortable. They wanted him because he was so fantastic as a surgeon, but at the same time, they were embarrassed because the people would say, well, how come the, the government is allowing him to pray and have icons, etc., etc.? So sometimes they tried to tolerate it and sometimes they would put him into jail because it was embarrassing for them. The same as the emperor. Being an egotistical man, being a proud creature, he also was... Uh, really, really embarrassed, and that's why he became angry that this government official is proclaiming his faith in front of everyone and putting him down. And he said to the he said to Adrian, "Have you gone mad? What are you doing? Why are you confessing this faith?" this silly faith, and why are you numbering yourself with those uneducated men or those disgusting men and things like that, those people. So he tried to put down the Christians to make St. Adrian to say to himself, well, yeah, they are, look, look, look at them, they're in rags. A lot of them were beaten up. They weren't in very good condition, actually. And the emperor said to him, ask forgiveness and I will let you go. And then the, um, uh, Adrian replied, I shall ask the true God that he, f that he forgive me the sins which I committed as a pagan. St. Adrian became conscious of his sins, and that's the mark of a person who has been visited by God's grace. As soon as we become conscious of our sins, that's the first step. When a person's not conscious of his sins, it means that they're not really close to God. That is one of the signs of a person's conversion, that they become conscious of their sins. Some of you who know and have gone through that, some of you who weren't in the church from young but later on changed, you'll know that one of the biggest things in the beginning of that conversion would be the consciousness of the sins that these sins are horrible. I have met people who actually say to me that um, I don't feel guilty, and why should I feel guilty? And they expect me to have an argument with them, but you can't convert someone. You can't make someone to hate their sins. You can't hate, you can't 
fight someone and say, but you've got to repent, you've got to go to confession. We've said all this before. This is ridiculous. It is really not fruitful to do that. God's grace visits the person and the person becomes uh, conscious of his sins. So, I'll repeat that because that's very important. If our conversion was correct, true, and we became conscious of our sins, we understand that God gave us the grace to see our sins, to feel repentant over them. That is a sign of grace. And if we understand that it was from God's grace which helped us to repent, then why are we trying to force others to repent? If we are doing that, it means that either, one, our own conversion wasn't correct, it wasn't true, or we forgot and we've deceived, we've become deceived, and we believe now that we are above the Holy Spirit and that we are the ones who are going to go and force others to repent. This is not a correct spirit, especially for us Orthodox. Don't do it. It is very, very damaging. Husbands can do it to their wives. That's not good. Wives that have changed, but their husbands haven't. The wives try and change their husbands. Parents try and convert their children. Children that have changed try and convert their parents or their cousins or their friends or their neighbours. And they're going out like Jehovah Witnesses trying to convert the world. That is not how it's done. Actually... The demons don't mind you doing that. Now, you might say, how can that be? If you're, if you're telling someone to repent of their sins, why would the demons want that when the demons want us to remain unrepentant? Because the demons know that when you go and yap, yap onto someone and you're on them, if you can get the visual, I mean, not that you're doing it, but visually, if you can get the imagination that you've got someone from their neck and saying, repent, repent, and slapping them in the face, or getting them on the ground and getting both of your knees into their chest and telling them you must repent, that's how it is. It's virtually like that. And the people who do that make the person who they're trying to convert to go away from the church. Now, I remember when I was at teacher's college, and I remember... A fellow there, he used to go to a, my high school, but he was one year younger than me, or two years, maybe two years younger. And he was there, and I was having my lunch, and he came up to me, and he started talking, well, I wasn't in the church at that stage, and orthodox born, but not in the church. I wasn't practicing. And then he started talking to me, and the Lord, and the sins, and this, and that, and that. And it just, to me, it turned me off. It made me, it made me sick. And one, I didn't go near him again. I avoided him. And secondly, it just turns me off. 
And that's why today, because of that spirit, which the Protestants have a lot, or some Protestant Orthodox, because that spirit exists, it makes it difficult to actually preach repentance to people because people associate the word repentance or the word the Lord with these people who go around and try and convert people even by force or they try and be nice to you like the Jehovah Witnesses. They're very nice. They come to your door and they're full of smiles. They come with their babies. They come with their babies as well to make sure that they move you. And, you know, they, they can offer you things. I don't know. That's just like a... But it's sickening in that they are trying to convert people either through emotional reasons, like some of these Protestants that preach. They preach emotionally where they begin to scream. You've seen them do that. Some of them, they begin to scream and they begin to convulse, you know, they, they shake, you know, they run up and down the hall. When I look at that and then a Muslim, for example, sees that, what's he going to say? He's going to say, that's Christianity. That person, even though in the Orthodox Church we don't do that, but to people... Christianity is Christianity. Sometimes they don't understand that Orthodox is different to Catholic, is different to Protestant, is different to Seventh-day Adventist, different to Jehovah Witnesses, which they even say that they're Christian. But they don't believe that Christ is God. When people see that, people who, not go, who don't go to church, people who have, don't know much about Christianity, when they see that, it's very difficult for them to come to the church. And then you allow... God to work his grace. It doesn't mean that we can't try to help people. We can, in a, in a non-fanatical way, we can give a pamphlet, you can give a CD, you can give a book, you can pray for the person. Those type of things are allowed, but not in a fanatical way. But the best way, which is this way that St. Adrian was converted... He was converted because of two reasons. One, the example of the saints, the example of the martyrs, that he saw them there. And he saw them that they were ready to die, to be tortured for their faith in Christ. That is powerful. Very powerful. Another example which comes to mind is the Serbians in, in uh, the, sec uh, the Second World War. When they, some of them could have converted to Catholicism and have been spared, but they didn't convert because they say they wanted to die Orthodox. So a lot of them were tortured horribly by this group of Catholics and died when if they converted... To Catholicism, they could have lived. That's a good example. That's an example. That's something to look at. But let's look at our own example. Let's look at we as Orthodox Christians living in Sydney, for example, or those who listen to the talk, wherever they are, Canada, America, whatever. 
Let's look at our examples as Orthodox Christians. How does our life influence others? Not preaching, let's just leave that. Not trying to convert people through our words. Just to convert. Remember that St. Adrian asked them, what do you believe in? They didn't go to him and say, we believe in Christ and you should believe. And they, they didn't do that. They just were there in their chains, tormented. And St. Adrian asked them because he saw their example. Now, let's look at the Orthodox Christians of today's example. This is really interesting. I'll try and give as many examples as I can because it's quite uh, an, an amazing thing. The Orthodox Christians of today, what is the example? It goes like this. See? What's that stand for? Who knows? Circle? Close? It's a circle, but it's a numerical circle. Zero! There, we are no examples. Because when you walk into an Orthodox Christian home today... They've got the internet, so the others got internet. In the kids' rooms, they've got the posters of their movie, whatever they've got all up there, so the others got it. They've got the Women's Weekly, so Orthodox Christians got their Women's Weeklies as well. They've got the TV, so do they. They've got Foxtel, so do they. The games, so do they. The makeup, so do they. What else? Star signs. They read them. A lot of Orthodox Christians read them to their condemnation. They believe in superstitious things like um, um, speaking to spirits. That's what a lot of Orthodox Christians, a lot of them do believe that these people speak to spirits. That show that was on the TV even just a few, about a month ago, like the Australia's psychic, something like that, I forgot now. What was it called? The Australian's West Psychic, something like that. And they had these, these people who had to compete with each other, who is the greatest psychic. And they, were, they all had their qualities. Some of them could talk with the dead, supposedly, and some of them knew with things. But they gave them all these tests. Where Ned Kelly was buried, where was the kid in the bush that was supposedly lost, and whose bag was what at the airport. Most of the stuff they got was wrong. And, um, but some of them were correct. And there was no doubt, and they had also, as the two people that were observing it, there was one woman who was a psychic herself, and she was making her comments, and the other person was a... Uh, what's that word called? Skeptic, thank you. Skeptic. That means that he's neither there or there, and he would sit one foot over the other and would say, oh, that was a guess, and that's a guess. But some of the things that they said was impossible to guess. So when people watched that show, including Orthodox Christians, they would say that those people are true psychics, that they have. Like they, like the psychics would come into the audience, we've said this before, and would look at someone, that person there, and say, you know, do you know a person named such and such? They go, yes, it's my mother. She's talking to me. And then she begins to tell her, to tell the lady or the man in the audience all about that person. 
especially if they're, if they're um, real psychics. Now, don't say that I'm a heretic yet, just wait. If they're real psychics, meaning that they've got communication, not with the dead, but they've got communication with something, and the people in the audience cry, etc. But if Orthodox Christians don't know the teachings of the church with regards to communication with the dead, they don't read the lives of saints, they don't have contact with the priest to tell them, then they're going to believe that that person... And to tell you the truth, if I wasn't in the church and I have never read what I've read, I would believe it too. It's just 100%. That how else does she know about her mother or her grandmother in that detail? So that person with his one foot over the other, the sceptic, was saying, well... Yes, it was a lot of guesswork, but there, no, there wasn't, in this case, but it was for, for some of those people, some of them were guessing, but for a lot of them, they weren't guessing. They were getting information that was correct. But the problem there is, as Orthodox Christians, we should know that you cannot communicate with the dead. They're locked in. You cannot communicate with the dead. The communication which takes place from those people, and I'm not saying that these people are possessed, because possession is quite different. When a person's possessed, you'll know it. These people are in communion with demons, but they don't know it. They're being tricked. However, I wonder if they will give less word than us, who are Orthodox Christians and who should know better, and who actually go to these places or believe in these things. So, yeah, people say, oh, they're satanic. Oh, look at her, she's a witch. And where's her pointy hat? And where's this? And she gave birth to Harry Potter, and this and that. But the point is that we can put them down because we're supposedly better, but how do we know on the last day that they're not going to give less word? Does that woman who was telling... That woman or the man that was a psychic was telling the lady in the audience all about that. Do they actually know that they're actually being, uh, that the demons are talking through them? And if they don't, and if they're being tricked because they don't have what we have, the lives of saints, the traditions of the church, the orthodox priests, to enlighten us, if they haven't got that, then they will give word less than Orthodox Christians who have everything and believe in that stuff. So where's the example for us today of Orthodox Christians? And I would say that really there is not hardly anything at all. They have two children, Orthodox have two children, or one, or whatever. They have abortions, a lot of Orthodox Christians have abortions. They commit adultery. Orthodox Christians commit adultery. They're more favourable now towards um, homosexuality, for example. A lot of Orthodox Christians are becoming favourable towards them. It doesn't mean you hate the people, but we don't agree with that particular sin. So it's very hard today to differentiate between. They believe in Santa. How many Orthodox believe in Santa? How many of us, they give their children Easter eggs with bunnies on Easter, on, on, on Pascha? 
and Orthodox Christians teach their children about the bunny that comes and gives little eggs to them. And that sand is going to come down the chimney, even though in most modern homes there are no chimneys. But anyway, Santa must come in some other way, maybe through a window, and comes and gives them presents. When I was young, I was told that when my tooth falls out, you put it in the cup, and then the next day there'll be some coins in the cup. And who brought that? The tooth fairy. <laughs> Orthodox teach their children that. The others teach their children that. So as you can see, really, we are lacking in example. It's not enough the, that we have one difference with them. That in one little corner of our house, we have an icon and a, sometimes we light the candelia, the, the lambada. The oil lamp. That's it. There's all these things that are very similar. So people today cannot see examples as there should be because it says Christ says that the Christians should be the salt of the earth why do they put salt in food so it doesn't go off why are Christians called salt the Christians are salt because by being in society they prevent society going off becoming corrupt and Christ says and if the salt's lost its basically the salt part of it, then it's just worth nothing. And if we as Orthodox Christians have lost the salt, we're not salty. We're not living Orthodox Christian lives and being examples, then we are better to be thrown out. It doesn't mean that we're going to go around and parade our virtues so that people can convert. Look at me. I fast every day convert now to my religion, or look at me, you know, I, I read the lives of saints, or whatever. These things, don't do these things, or, you know, like, you know those convenience stores, those 7-Elevens, they're really bright lights, they've got, and it makes you, it makes the person to see, as you're driving along, and you see these really, they must have about 30,000 fluorescent lights in there, and then whether you know it or not, as you're driving past, you'll notice it, because you become blinded from the, from the excessive light. And then what happens, it just gives you an idea. I'll go and get a Mars bar, or I'll go and get a Coke, or I'll go. That's why they do it. It's really bright. We're not going to make ourselves in that way bright and think that I'm going to convert people back to those examples. We lead an orthodox, humble, spiritual life, and people will see it themselves. We don't advertise it. What's the second reason? I'd like to stop there for a minute, because the last time I yapped too much and I didn't get a chance to let you ask questions. Everyone, you have questions, disagreements, anything you like, comments. Mark. By reading the life of saint, by venerating the icons, by lighting a candle in front of an icon, by lighting an oil lamp in front of the icon, we are asking the saints to pray for us. In the old days, uh, the Christians that lived in the villages, they would produce wax and they would set aside the best wax 
for the church or the best oil for the church or the best wheat to make prosvara for the church. So for them it was a sacrifice like getting wax, good quality wax which they could sell or use for other things and burn it was like a sacrifice. For us we give a dollar. It's not really much of a sacrifice but anyway the point is that when we do light a candle in front of the icon we are asking the saints to pray for us and as you say when you venerate the icon we are giving honour to the saints. We're not giving honour to the wood we're not giving honour to the glass we're not giving honour to the paint we're giving honour to the Images that are there, which that honor goes to where they are in heaven. It brings them close to us. Some Protestants say, well, you worship idols. It's very hard to explain it to them because they actually believe that icons are idols. But the way, if you want to do it, but I mean, I wouldn't advise it, but one good way of doing it is you say to them, can I come to your home? And then say, oh, who's that there? That's a picture of my father, the Protestant might say. Or anyone, might be even Orthodox who actually says. Some Orthodox don't even believe in venerating icons. That's your father, is it? Interesting. So what's happened? He goes, oh, yes, I really love him. He's my father. And he um, died many, many years ago, but I have his picture there. You go to the kitchen and secretly you get a couple of eggs. Then you come into the lounge room and you pulverise the picture with eggs and rotten tomatoes. Then we'll see how he reacts. And then if he gets upset, which he will, and I say, well, why are you upset? Because you defa- Well, that's not your father. That's not your father there. It represents your father, does it? Well, the icons represent the saints. So, of course, I'm not asking you to do that. That's just an example to try and get my point across. You know, you go to these people's and you go and you see on their office, they've got pictures of their wives, their husbands or whatever in their houses. And if you deface those pictures, they will get upset. But that's not your wife. It's only, it's only a piece of paper. So that's the point. Yes. On Sunday, Saturday I think that the Orthodox practice, I'm not sure, because even different churches have different traditions, but when you come to church, it would be good, as you're saying, even the deacon, when he senses before the liturgy, he's greeting the saints, you know, and he's asking the saints to help. So the same with the people, when they come and they kiss all the icons, they are greeting those saints, they're asking the saints help, they light candles in front of them asking for help. And when they leave, they are they could be farewelling the saints at that time, but asking that the saints obviously stay with them in their life. But that's different. Russians might have that practice. Greeks might have different practices. But in general, um, I think even Manathos, if I remember right, the monks come in, they kiss all the icons, and then later on, as they're leaving, a lot of them, yes, they also kiss the icons. So I think that's the, the proper way. But by reading the lives of the saints... See, I went to Manath when I was younger. I went a lot of times. I think I've been seven, eight times. You know, thanks God for that. However, I went there and they used to go, oh, this is the head of St. John Chrysostom, or this is the arm of St. John the Baptist, or this is this. You know, and I venerate, but I was very young in the church at that stage, and I didn't know exactly 
I knew St. John Chrysostom, but it's different. It's when you read their lives and when you pray to them, when you involve them in your life, that's when you become really, really close to them. And even if you don't venerate their relics, you are venerating them in your heart. If you can venerate their relics, that's good as well. Their bodies, parts of their body. But that's what happens when you read St. Ignatius, the Russian saint says, when you read a spiritual book, you become one with that book. When you read a worldly book, you become one with that book. When you read a satanic book, you become one with that book. When you watch a satanic movie, you become one with the movie. If you watch uh, uh, something that's a bit more ennobling, whatever you're watching, whatever you're reading, it affects us. So we have to be really, really careful that we're not reading things. You know, like a lot of people just read about, like, um, for example, what's happening now? I don't know, Tom Cruise with his wife. And the fact that there, there's some problems there and she looks haggard and looks 50 years old, I don't know. It doesn't matter, but by reading these things, we become part of their life. And that's not what we want. Or watching things on the television. We don't want to be part of their life. We want to be part of the saints' lives who can help us in our everyday life. It doesn't mean we cut ourselves off from everything and don't know nothing about the world. But to sit down and read a woman's weekly or whatever and read six, seven pages on Princess Mary and her life at the palace in Denmark, I don't think that's really very beneficial for us. Or other things, that guys read different things, women read different things. Whatever we read, we become part of it. And that's not good if that what you're reading is bad. There are good things to read as well. They don't have to read all spiritual but you've got to be discerning on what you're reading. And the church teaches us, and you feel it when you're reading something, that something's not right there, it's, not, it's unsettling me, and that's good, etc. But always ask the priest, because the priest usually would know what's going on. You could be reading a book which is spiritual, which is holy, but it's dam it, it can damage you because it's just too high. It's just too much above. It's just too, too much detail. It's just too deep. And ordinary Christians can read that book and begin to become deceived. So that's why people that live in the world read Lives of Saints and books which teach about how to live in the world. People in the world don't go and read um, an immense number of books on monasticism. That's, that's not going to work. That's going to be very damaging. And that's why you meet people who do read a lot of books on monastics and you can see, you can, I can pick them out straight away. As soon as they start to speak, when they start speaking about silence and eating a bit of, bit of bread after three o'clock in the afternoon and having just bread and water for three days in a row and... I don't know, sleeping on the floor. Some of them even go that far. It just becomes too much. And those people have actually fallen into what's called prelest Slavonic or Pliny in Greek or deception in English. It's deception. You've got to be very, very careful. That's why we should read all the things to do with married life, children. You're not going to read in St. John Climacus, for example, on the latter about how to bring up children. It doesn't talk about that. Monastics don't have children. 
They're not going to talk to you about that. You need to know, as married people in the world, how to bring up children. And that doesn't mean to listen to other people in the world, um, some of these doctors, etc., which they might have some good points. But some of the stuff they've got is also rubbish. But you should read uh, orthodox literature which teach how to bring up a child in this world. Not ma just monastic books. I mean, I don't even read those books much because I'm not living in a monastery in the desert or in somewhere in where I don't see people. I'm in the world, I see people, and therefore I read softer books. That's for me. Why should I go and read about ascetical teachings? It's too much for me. I won't understand it anyway. Or I'll fall into deception and I think that I understand it and then go into Lululand. And you don't want to go into Lululand because a lot of times you don't come back. It's very dangerous. A lot of people that fall into deception commit suicide or end up in psychiatric hospitals. It's very dangerous. Just read books that are simple. And this here is simple. This is an example of a married couple. What's the second reason that he converted? One was the lives of the martyrs, the examples. The second reason was, remember, his wife was orthodox. She was Christian. He wasn't. He was a pagan. Now, the question arises, how come she married him? St. Paul says, if you are both pagan and then one of you convert, don't leave your husband, don't leave your wife. Stay with them if that person leaves you alone to lead your life and they want to stay with you. But in this case, it doesn't say whether St. Natalie was actually clearly, was she a Christian before she got married? And I've got a feeling that she was. Now, this is quite a bit mind-boggling to me because I know that Christians avoided marrying people who were pagans. But she was married to this man. During the Turkish, during the Ottoman Empire, when the Greeks and the Serbians and a lot of people were under the Turks, a lot of Christian women were taken, they were forced to marry Muslims and live in harems and things like that. And uh, so therefore they were living there with these people. And someone would say, well, that's fornication, that's adultery, I don't know, whatever. And then some would say that they're not even allowed to commune. But they did commune because it was beyond them. They freely did not do that. They were forced to become the wife or one of the wives of these Pasha, whatever these people were called, these rulers. And even up to a few years ago, I have a, a friend of mine who's from Constantinople, he lived, he was born there, and he said that his auntie or great-auntie, I think it was his great-auntie, was one of them. Because remember that up to the, you know, there's a lot of Greeks living in Turkey up to 1920 around there, and some of the girls were kidnapped, were taken away and forced to live with these people, etc., and you can't, that would be quite um, wrong to say, oh, because they're living in that way, that means that they can't commune, they're not orthodox Christians, etc. They were forced. Now, in this case, 
whether she was forced to marry him, there was pressure. I got a feeling that she was Christian, but she ended up marrying him. There might have been a political pressure. There's, there were, in those days, there was, all these, there was all these strange things. Actually, someone said to me the other month that when I said last week that you should not, last month, uh, when you marry outside the church, you deny the church. And this person brought up to me the example in Russia and possibly in Serbia and Bulgaria and all, that uh, it was very hard for Christians to go to church to get married. They would lose their jobs. They could have even been put in jail. They could have had their children taken away. Albania was very bad. Albania, like, um, that was one of the worst forms of communism. And this person said to me that a lot of his relatives were actually not married in the church as much as I think I've heard that a lot of Serbians weren't married in the church because of communism and the pressures, etc. And what happens to them? Are they denied the church? And my answer to him was, I didn't live in communist, I've never lived in communist time. Tell me about living in Western society and the temptations involved in Western society, and I can tell you quite a lot, which is what I'm doing today. But I've never lived in a communist country. Like there's also some strange things in Africa, for example, a lot of the converts there, once someone said to me, um, that a lot of the Orthodox in Africa, the, na the natives, they dance around during the services. You know, it's different to us the way we are. That's their way. And he said to me, what do you think of that? I think he was trying to test me to see what I say. And I say, well, what does the holy people who are in Africa, what did they say? They go, well, that's part of their nature. We'll go, well, if they say it, why should I go against that? And it's the same thing here, is that I don't have experience of what happened there. In, in Russia, I don't know what it was like or in Serbia to live under these people. But what I do have to say is that sometimes people chose not to ignite the authorities by doing something which would make their children to be taken away from them. And they made some decisions which in, in our minds are not orthodox decisions. They're not really proper decisions. Some people, one can say, well, if the communists told them not to get married, they should get married and then they should get killed, for example, because that's what the martyrs did. But not all the martyrs did that. A lot of martyrs also, a lot of, sorry, a lot of the saints also compromised. They were very careful during the times of the Turkish Empire, even the Greek patriots, the bishops, compromised. They didn't do things to make the Turks become angry and do things to the Christians. For example, when I read the life of Saint Constantine the New, he was a Turk. He wanted to go to Mount Athos to be baptized. A lot of the monks in Mount Athos said no. We're not going to baptize you because if the Turks find out, they'll burn the monastery down. And then some would say, well, that's what the confession of the faith. They should confess the faith. 
They should say, who cares what the Turks say? Let them burn the monastery down, for example. But they didn't do that. A lot of the patriots, they compromised with the Turks. They tried to alleviate any persecutions against the Christians because the patriots then, knowing that if too much pressure is applied to some of the Christians that had lost themselves, then they could deny Christ and become Muslim. So they tried to avoid. There's all these things that occurred. And we are not here in the position to judge them because we don't know what they were up against. However, when communism fell, as I said to this um, individual, I said to him, when communism fell, the churches were open, then those people had a right to go and get married. And if they didn't get married, well, then there's a question there, well, why aren't they getting married when there's no longer persecution? The same is in Serbia. I know a Serbian couple, for example, who wasn't married. Because why? I don't know. I, I, and then I asked some questions, and they lived in Australia for 35 years. Well, what? Was there communists in Australia? Were they going to get their heads cut off? Well, why didn't they get married? Because they didn't want to go to church. They went to a registry. That's a denial of the church. They denied the, their church. They had their children baptised in the church, but they didn't get married in the church. Well, why? Now, as for those who lived in those times that were horrible, whether in Serbia, Russia, especially Albania, which was just one big barbed wire around that country. If you read some books on that, that was really a very bad form of communism. Second after that, I think, was Russia. Actually, Serbia wasn't as bad, but it was still bad. Okay, we will have a break so that you can um, stretch have something to drink, something, biscuits, whatever you like there. And uh, we'll be back in about um, five, ten minutes, something like that. So you're welcome there to go. I'd also like to formally welcome Father John from America. Welcome, Father, on behalf of the group here. Thank you very much. And also just... Um, Remember when I said to you early on that uh, I'm born in Australia and I find it difficult to even, in my younger years when I used to do confession, I avoid it now, to even confess people that come from Greece and other countries, from villages, because I don't understand their mentality. I believe that. I, don't, I think it's very difficult. You have to have some understanding of the background of the person. Some spiritual fathers are able to, um, well, they're able to kind of cross, you know, but even the Optin elders, some of the Optin elders that were educated, they would deal more with educated people that came. Some of them who were from the villages would help those who came from the villages. Those who were merchants, that were in business, they were able to relate better to those who were from that walk of life. Of course, there were some saints who were able to help all people. Well, I'm not one of them. And I found it very difficult to deal with um, people from Russia or Greece or Serbia, these backgrounds. I don't understand their mentality. And a lot of times, when I would try to help them or give them advice, it would become all blurred at times. And I found it difficult. So I said to you as well that I don't understand, for example, fully what happened in Russia. Or what happened in Serbia? I wasn't there. I didn't go through communism. 
a brother in Christ said to me that when I was speaking about Russia, that I made some errors, which that's not a problem. And he said to me that Russians become offended when you say that Russia won the war because of the cold, which it was cold. But to say that is means that you're putting them down of what of their own patriotism, of their bravery, etc. And I said to this uh, brother, I said to him, I am a product of Western society. I went to school in Western society and I've watched certain newsreels and television, etc. in here. And a lot of those things that they tell us are lies. So therefore, that's what I heard. That's what I know. I didn't actually go further to understand that. So we've got to be careful. I've got no problems in making mistakes. That's okay. That's human, as the saints say. But not to admit your mistake is demonic. So therefore, that's not a problem. We have to be willing, when we make a mistake, to admit it, but at the same time, to understand that we are products, or a lot of us here, are products of the society. Like, for example, those who were brought up in communism have certain mentalities as well. Those who were brought up in in a village have a certain other mentality. Those who were brought up in Sydney, for example, 50 years ago, like I was brought up there, got different. So we have to understand that people are different. Those in America have different things. So we are common in many ways, but there also there are some differences, and we have to understand the differences exist. So I said to this person that um, very openly that I am being influenced, just like those that were brought up in communism were brainwashed in their own way. We also, in Western society, are brainwashed to some extent through what I said at the beginning of the talk, through TV, through music, through books, through school, etc. We have to understand that we have been influenced and we have to be open to change our minds when we find the truth, uh, when it's presented to us. So the correction on that is that, yes, there was exceptional cold during those times in the Second World War when the Germans went and attacked Russia. But what we have to not forget is that the Russians were being driven by their desire, not, as I was corrected, just for Stalin, because a lot of them knew that he was um, uh, a demon, but they knew that the type of people that these Nazis were that were, went to other countries in Europe and had destroyed these countries and taken over, and the Russians, out of their patriotism, wanted to defend their country so the same thing doesn't happen to them. Did I correct it? I hope. That's, uh, that's um, yeah, and thank you for that. Um, and whatever, I, I have no problems. I like when people say, well, you know, you said this, but this, this, and this. You see, only God is perfect. The ecumenical councils were perfect in that they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. We as humans have room for error. Saints make errors. If what the saints say have been accepted by the church, then it's perfect. But not everything the saints would say would be necessarily correct. So we've got to understand that mentality. 
Only apart from God, only one person on earth is perfect. The Pope of Rome. <laughs> so, the second reason why St. Adrian changed is the prayers of his wife. So, as I said, I don't know why and how he, she ended up marrying him as being a pagan, but whatever the reason is, she loved him, even though he was not a Christian. She did not tell her husband that she was Christian. She didn't tell him. She lived her Christian life secretly. But behind the scenes... She didn't, as I was saying before, try and ram Christianity down her husband's throat. She didn't try and change him in that way, but she prayed for him. And when you read the holy, the modern elders, which we're going to do next month, God willing, they say that fewer words, more prayer, because some people used to go, Holy Father, my children don't listen, and I tell them and tell them and tell them they don't listen. And he would answer them, more prayer, less words. Or, my wife doesn't listen, she's this, that. more prayer, less words. Or, my husband doesn't listen, more prayer, less words. And we forget about prayer. We all forget that really, for a person to change, as I said at the beginning, it's up to God. And by praying, we are acknowledging that we can't do it, we can help somehow especially through our example, as I said before. But the main thing is that it's God's grace which helps, which converts and brings people to him. So this is an example of what I said in the, in the advertisement, the perfect marriage. What? The perfect marriage is, well, in this case it's one-sided at this time because St. Adrian was a pagan before, so on the wife's side, the perfect there, the, the perfect setup is that she loved her husband so much that she would pray for him to come to the truth for his salvation. Today we are confused. What is true love? And the fathers of the church define the love Apart, that, I mean, love has many names. Like God is love. Love is when we care for the soul of a person. That is the sign that we have love. One husband came to me and said, my wife does this, my wife does that, my wife, my wife, my wife, my wife. And I said, okay, do you pray for her? Oh, so he didn't. He didn't think of it. He didn't even think of praying, but he thought that he can change his wife by uh, shouting at her, putting her down, being negative. He thought he could change her by being strict, for example. But he forgot about prayer. And why he forgot about prayer is because he doesn't pray for himself. And I often would say to this person, are you praying for your salvation? He would get shocked because it would stun him. Why? 
because he didn't really care about his own salvation, therefore he didn't care about his wife's salvation. True love is when you care for the salvation of the other. And when someone has love and cares for the salvation of the other, their actions can be misinterpreted as being unloving, as being horrible. A lot of the saints were called unloving. Many of our confessors were accused of being enemies of the empire, enemies of the emperor, as he was, as St. Adrian was, and as being pests, as being people who were disturbing everything and everyone. Why? Because they wouldn't throw a little bit of incense in front of the statues. And people would say, out of love, out of love, just do it so that you can save your family, or do it so that you can save yourself, or do it so you can stop the emperor of getting upset or whatever, in this case. And yet, his love of Christ, which is love, was so great that he chose, that they chose to confess their faith and die. Now, St. Eustin Popovich, a Serbian saint, he was a priest, educated. He had doctorates, etc. When communism came, they didn't like him because St. Eustin had a big mouth. He would preach. He would, say, he would say things against communism and he would preach Christ. They didn't like that. And they exiled him to the monastery where he was, there, Celia, with the nuns. And he should, have been a, he should have become a bishop, but they didn't make him. Some of the Serbian synod wanted to defrock him, to make him lose his priesthood, because they called him a pest, because they called him a monster, and they said, this man can't have love. He was against ecumenism. Oh, he was really against ecumenism because the patriarch of the Serbian church at that time was fully into ecumenism. So St. Eustin would speak up against ecumenism. And when they allowed Catholics, I think, or Protestants to come into the Belgrade church, he wrote publicly and said that that church has to be re-blessed, has to be sanctified, because by allowing them to come in and pray in the sense of as priests, because they allowed them to, to participate in the service, then it's been defiled. That's what he said. And people say, why are you causing trouble? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? You've got no love. But he did have love. He had love for the truth. He had love for the church. He had love for God. For example, my mother's passed away, and she, I have a memory of her. That's what, whatever it is. That's, that's my memory. There it is there. Now, if someone comes along and says something about her, even if it doesn't sound bad, but it's not true, I am not going to like it. Why? Because my love for my mother is that I remember her as she is. That fact, that point, that thing that they're saying is not right. I don't want that in that memory. And that's the same as the saints. They didn't want these things that were wrong introduced in the church and their love 
for people was such that they knew that by allowing these incorrect things to come in or whatever incorrect practices to come into the church, that we are jeopardising the salvation of others. Saint Eustin Povich, who they called all those names, had the true love. And at the end, even though he used to preach in the monastery, guess how many people were there? He would have one or none except for the nuns. No one would go. No one would go to listen to him preach. Because they didn't recognize, they didn't understand him, that this man is a great saint. And at the end, he has been labeled as the conscience of the Orthodox Church. In other words, he was, you know, like our conscience tells us, that's wrong, I shouldn't do that, that's okay, you know, that's our conscience, that God's put the conscience. Well, he was called the conscience of the Orthodox Church. In other words, he was there telling everyone what's wrong. And what's right in the Orthodox Church in relationship to dogmas of the church? That's love. And that's how a lot of the saints were. Like some people say to me, oh, you've got no love. I remember once when I was at a church, a Russian church, and this woman came up to me and she was going hysterical. She said, I have to commune today. I have to commune. And I said, well, I can't confess you because I don't understand because she was Russian. She was, her English was very limited. And she goes, no, I must commune today. I must commune today. And I go, well, um, I can't. And she goes, no, no. She started crying. And then other Russians were looking at me and I knew that they were going to just judge in and start saying that I'm, I'm a beast. People who don't understand the, the mind of the church, they think that the priests or the bishops have no love when they make certain stances or say certain things to people. Anyway, I was influenced. I must confess that I was influenced a bit and I started to kind of um, sway and I started saying, maybe I am too strict at times. Maybe this person needs to commune. I mean, I don't understand what she's talking about, but maybe I'm wrong. And I got all doubts and then I had all these eyes on me and all that made me uncomfortable. And... Um, so I was just about to say, oh, uh, uh, okay. And then I said, something made me say, um, are you married? I don't know why I said it. Are you married? Yes, yes. No, no, I'm not married. Um, I live with a man. He's Jewish. Well, then I knew. I, had, I said to her, you can't commune because you're not allowed to live. No, I must commune. I must go. Why? I thought that something was happening. She had to have an operation. She was dying. She had cancer. And she goes, oh, because tomorrow I've got an exam at the university. And then I realised that um, I made a very big mistake that I just about lost myself to kind of go along and I got confused, etc. This is my, my, in my young years. Now I like to go according to my conscience. I try anyway to go according to my conscience. But I was told by some people that were in the, in the church that I've got no love because I didn't let her commune. And a lot of you people can be said that you've got no love when you bring up your children in certain ways. Do you teach your children about fat Santa? No, I don't. You've got no love. You're cruel. You're horrible. You don't love your children. To, to teach them that Christmas is part of it, that that's what their children, you're cruel. And all these things influence us. 
And you have to be strong to say no, but that's not what it is. Okay, some things, maybe the Christmas tree we can, we can compromise a little bit. You know, you can put even an icon. What I tell people is, okay, you've got the Christmas tree, maybe you can put an icon there and, you know, you can try to Christianise it. But I don't know how you're going to make... Uh, I don't know how Santa can be equated to the birth of Christ. I cannot see how it's done. So... Whatever we do in life, a lot of times we are labelled as having no love. But when you care about your children's souls, when you care about your husband or your wife, etc., others around you, this is a sign of love. The, the true love is when you care for the person's soul. Don't get mistaken. Today, this is missing in a lot of people. People don't care about the soul of others because they don't care about their own souls. I must admit that in Australia, that does not really exist that much. But when I went to Nanathos, Greece, to monasteries, monasteries are very important, because in monasteries, people are struggling for their salvation. They are conscious of salvation. They are there and they are suffering, they are struggling, they are going what they're going through, they're denying their sexual instinct, they're denying of having children, they're denying of having property, they're denying everything because of, for the sake of salvation, the best example for people. That's why when people go to Mount Athos, Germans have gone to Mount Athos, Austrians, English people, Americans, etc. A lot of people have come to Mount Athos to visit and a lot of people were moved by the life of the monks at Manathos, and a lot of people converted to orthodoxy through the examples of the monastics. And that's why that icon that I gave you once before, which shows the lay people following the monastics, the monastics following the angels, and the angels going to Christ. It's trying to say that, that the lay people look at the monastics as examples, and the, and the monastics... Look at the angels as examples. And that's how it is. Now, before, I know I said to you, you don't read monastic books. I'm saying you don't read deep monastic books. You can read them a little bit here and there. But especially when you go to the monasteries, you see Christianity in practice. I was very much influenced when I went to Manathos. My conversion, I would have to say, occurred on Manathos. It occurred a little bit here in the parish but it was very weak. But when I went to Manathos, it really affected me. Because there, they would speak about the salvation of the soul. They would talk about struggle. They would talk about hell. They would talk about, be careful not to fall into sins. Because I remember once when I went to the skeet of um, a Yana, St. Anne's skeet, I think, if I remember right. And there was a, an elder there, I think his name was Anthemos, my brain remembers right. And I think I've seen his life written in one of the Orthodox words. And this man, I was about 25, 26 at the stage, and he came up to me, didn't even know who he was. He was the confessor of that area, like he was the main confessor. But I didn't know much because I was young. I was young in the faith and young in the head. And so this person came up to me. And he grabbed me and he started hugging me and I didn't know what was going on. And he says, don't, don't, don't do it. 
don't give it up for the flesh. What he was trying to say is, which was very, very penetrating, he was saying, don't choose the flesh. Don't choose, in other words, the sins of the world, in particular the sexual sins. Don't choose that which is open, especially today for the young people, and lose your soul. He says, it's not worth it, he goes. It's not worth it. And it affected me then, but as time went on, it affected me more. And as I told you last month, I met a lot of different spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers who were occupied with salvation. When you don't associate with people who are occupied with salvation, then you it will not rub off onto you, and you will remain dead. You need to be near people, especially monastics. Now, you might say, how about the parish priests? Yes, some parish priests are, but a lot of times, unfortunately, due to the world and demands and children and a lot of responsibilities and stress and distractions, sometimes they don't, they can't kind of focus. You don't judge them, but there is a difficulty in focusing on it and they can sometimes lose themselves a bit. But the monastics in general, I'm sure Father John would agree, would be the ones who are, the nuns, the monks, who are focused on spiritual life. So therefore, visit the monasteries. We have one, the Kentland, the nuns, beautiful monastery. There's one in Kuma. There's monasteries in the Greek church. There's monasteries in the Serbian church. And hunt out those there who are concentrating on salvation. And that will influence you. Saint Natalie was preoccupied with her own salvation and therefore she started to concentrate on his salvation. Remember when we did Saint Xenia, the life of Christ, the life of, the life of Saint Xenia, the fool for Christ. She did not care about salvation. Her and her husband, they were going to parties in Russia. And then her husband died of, I think, a heart attack, just died while he was dancing, drunk. And then suddenly, obviously it affected her, she began to change and then she began to realise about spiritual life. She began to say, well, what happens to him? She began to become preoccupied with salvation, mostly about her husband's actually, in the beginning, which is good. I've seen people who don't care about their own salvation, but when someone dies, suddenly they become preoccupied with someone else's salvation or saying, what happened to him? Let's do prayers. Let's do liturgies for them. This and, that. and by doing that, that's also good because that begins to go, oh, wait a minute. If, if I'm doing this for, for the person, then who's going to do it for me? Or if I'm worried about his salvation or her salvation who's passed away, shouldn't I be worried about my salvation as well? Today, you rarely hear the words salvation, I have to say. And it's too, I say it painfully, you rarely hear people talk about salvation. Even people that go to church, 
people that kiss icons, people that commune and people that confess and people that lead spiritual lives, one can say, whatever that means, but they do not think about their salvation. The reason being is because the demons have one aim, and this is what they tell you. Do what you want and be what you want, as the old song used to say, but don't concentrate on salvation. Don't think about salvation. If you don't think about salvation, I'll leave you alone. If you look at salvation, I will pulverise you. And that's why people who begin to struggle, like people say to me, um, oh, the other night oh, I was sleeping and then something fell on me. Something, I don't know, something pounced on me in the night and I couldn't move and I was paralysed and this and that. And I say to them, okay, um, have you began lately to struggle a bit more? Have you been thinking about your soul more? Have you been praying more? He goes, yeah, I go, well, that's why. That's what happens. A lot of times that's, that's what happens. When a person begins to struggle, it doesn't mean it has to happen, but it happens differently. For some, when they start to seek salvation, they can get sick. They can be slandered. They can, their children can start becoming a bit agitated. Their husband or wife can become agitated. They might lose their job. All different things can occur. Temptations. The demons do not like the word salvation. Talk about Christ. Talk about the mother of God. Talk about icons. Talk about communion. Talk about confession. That's okay. Even confession. Because a lot of people confess for psychological reasons. They just confess because they want to feel better. But when we confess because we want salvation, when we commune so that we can have the forgiveness of sins for salvation, for life eternal, when we pray to God because we want to be saved, then that is very hurtful to him. And that's why he brings up all these distractions in the world, whether it's videos or DVDs or going out or sports or some people say, oh, is sports a sin? I'm saying to them, I'm not going to go into that. I'm not going to go, oh, is soccer a sin? I'm not going there. Why? Because, you know, oh, is music a sin? I'm not going there either. For some, yes, some satanic stuff, yeah. But oh, how about... Um, Classical, or how about this, or how about TV? There's some good things on TV, they say. And is that a sin? And I don't like those questions. I used to answer them, but I don't go there anymore. To me, it takes you into a, into a labyrinth of madness there. What I say now is, don't do things which obstruct salvation. When you're at the soccer match and you're being preoccupied with the ball and the shouting and the screaming and the spirit, and the sound, you know, really, you're not thinking about salvation. Now, some of you might say, does that mean we have to think about salvation all the time? Well, as Christians, that's what we should be doing. Because St. Paul says, pray without ceasing. And then people say, well, does, how can we pray without ceasing? doesn't just necessarily mean that you're praying. Thinking about your sins is prayer. Thinking about your children is prayer. Thinking about doing good is prayer. Thinking about your, your um, confession can be prayer. 
A lot of things is prayer. Reading spiritual books is prayer. Reading a bit of the Bible can be prayer. Helping the sick is prayer. All those things, giving money to the poor is prayer. So what's St. Paul saying when he says pray without ceasing, even though we know that the way of the pilgrim is a book, which the prayer of the heart goes automatically, which for a lot of us uh, don't expect it. I mean, these are exceptions that some people actually do get the prayer going on in their heart automatically, etc. And some people try to do that. I would advise don't go there because you can fall into deception because our minds are really open to fantasy. What I'm saying is just do simple spiritual life, which in a way is prayer. Are there any questions so far of what I've said? You can disagree too, because I, you know, I don't mind, as long as you do it nicely. George, no questions? Don't come later on and ask me. You have to ask me now, because sometimes you ask me good questions and you ask me at the end, I go, why didn't you mention it to the people in front of the people? That was an excellent question. Um, there it is. I knew there was one there. <laughs> go. We thought you said about when you begin your spiritual study. Based on salvation. As Christians, we can be zealous in the beginning and lose it later on. In other words, in the beginning, we can be start to be, you know, spiritual. I've seen a lot of people that they're struggling in the beginning. But later on, as it says in the gospel, just the worldly things, you know, getting involved with your children or studies or work or careers, anything, the TV, the internet, all these type of things, all distractions, you can lose yourself, but you sometimes you don't know that you've lost yourself. And then it only takes from God's grace, for you to be enlightened, to realise, hey, I've gone off. Maybe the priest might tell you, you know, I've noticed that you're not going well, or you might read something where you suddenly realise that you've gone off a bit, or someone else can tell you, your husband, your wife, whatever. I mean, you don't have to go to the spiritual father for everything because they're not available at the time. Sometimes your spiritual father can be your husband. Your spiritual mother can be your wife. They're, they're enlightened. I said that last time. They are enlightened a lot of times by God to tell you. You don't, don't reject what your spouse tells you. Don't reject what other people tell you. A lot of times God is speaking through them. And that brings us, oh, I now I've realised I haven't been going on the right path. Then we begin to try and rekindle that again and then we can become suddenly attacked. So a lot of times we don't know that we are actually gone off. So yes, it can happen. They're like Rasputin. Some people are confused about Rasputin because I've read St. John of Cronstand says, for example, his repentance was real. And other great saints of the Russian church said that he was deceived and demonic. And people are confused with this thing about this Rasputin. Rasputin was a man who became very influential with the Tsar's wife because her, her son, Alexis, had the, this hemorrhaging problem and that every time... He would pray. He, he could make him better. And a lot of people in the empire believed, unless I'm, I'm not wrong, but they believed that um, he was influencing the sovereigns in Russia and there was a whole problem about it. Anyway, so how can we have two saints? One saint says 
that his repentance was true, and other saints were saying that he was a demonic man. You know, and in point of actual fact, he used to uh, go into bouts of drinking and women and things like that. So what's the what's the thing there? Now I don't know fully, but I've thought about it. This is my own my own thing I like to present is that both that he when he changed, which is what St John of Cronstadt. Remember, he died. Uh, St John of Cronstadt died in nineteen o. Do you know, Father? Nineteen o eight. Do you know? I can't remember. He died before the revolution. Way anyway, St John of Cronstadt said his repentance was real. And I believe that it was real. He repented. But later on, out of deception, and this is what happens to all of us, in a way we're all little Rasputins, he began to become deceived. Like you can see his bulgy eyes. I don't like the bulgy eyes. And I've met people that have the bulgy eyes. The bulgy eyes is either they're a cross with a goldfish or <laughs> they are, in some ways, uh, it's, a, like a, it's a spiritual look that they think they believe that their spirituality is reflected through their eyes. So they become preoccupied with their eyes, such that their eyes are like, in Greek we say, uliasmena, like they're really opened up, and they're in church, and you can think that they are really quite spiritual people. Now, there are people who have physically got bulgy eyes. I'm not talking about them. Actually, I'm um, talking about these, these particular people who have entered into the spiritual life in a deceptive way. And that's what I think happened to Rasputin. He became proud of his own virtue, of his conversion, uh, because he was quite an off person before and he converted. And that's what happens to a lot of us. When we change, because we're inexperienced, we don't know what the word humility means because we've been brought up in pride, especially in this society. Maybe in the olden days in Russia and Greece, there was more of a spirit of humility, Obedience, children were more obedient, children were more humble. It was a way of life that doesn't exist today, Harley. Today, there's no respect. TV, school, society promotes this pride. And therefore, our souls are saturated with pride. When we're saturated with pride, we become more open to the demons. And it's knowing the fact that you've got this pride and trying to struggle, this is to be safe. But when someone doesn't know they've got pride, that means that they're really in danger. So a lot of times people don't even know it because it's just part of our life. It's part of our souls. We're full of pride. When we enter the spiritual life, we, must, we begin to look at our own virtues. Maybe, you know, God's given us grace to help us, help us to pray, help us to go to church, help us to confess, help us to read books, and we begin to become like in a fantasy that we're great. It's just natural to us. For us, it's unnatural to be humble. But in the olden days, for many people, it was natural to be humble. It was natural to be obedient. Not for us. We are really inclined and saturated in pride. Therefore, when we begin to lead a spiritual life, this pride that's in us begins to work in us and dictate to us and we begin to believe things that don't exist and the demons work through our pride to mix us up and to deceive us. 
And um, a lot of times people love their conversion, like they really say to me, oh, when I first changed, I remember I could do everything. I've mentioned this last time. However, that's not good to stay that way. And a lot of people complain to me and say, why can't I be like I was in the beginning where everything was easy and I really loved going to church? Now I can't even get up. Now I can't read the book. Now I can't even look at the priest. Now I can't even go to confession. Now I can't pray. Now I can't do this or whatever. And it's like everything's been taken away. And they look at that as being bad. That means for them, that means it's a catastrophe. But what I say, it's not a catastrophe. It's good. Now the question remains, how can a priest say it's good that someone can't pray, someone can't do this, someone is even scared of the priest? How is that good? Because it teaches us humility. It helps us to see that we are not what we think we are. The worst sin for Orthodox Christians is to believe you're something. That's the worst. And unfortunately... All of us, because we're brought up in this society, believe that we are something something great. We're proud of everything. We're proud of... I mean, I've met people that are proud of the most disgusting things. I've said it before, and you might think it's a joke, but people... Oh, I don't want to say it because you're going to get scandal, but people are proud of even the most stupid things. Oh, can you please pack up the chairs and put them into one thing? And the person, you see them there and they're acting in a certain way and they're packing up the chairs and you can see that something's wrong with them. I go, what's wrong? And goes, I've got this thought that everyone's looking at me that I'm packing the chairs so nice. This is um, serious. Yeah, you're laughing, but this is serious. And that's how a lot of people are. I don't even let people help much in the church because the, they become, they lose it with the pride. And... Today, more than ever, we have, we, we have that. So when a person doesn't have that prayer and, and things done easy and they've got to force themselves, that's good. Because that means that God has had mercy on the person, that God actually is saying, I better take this grace away, I better leave this person to his own devices so that they can see that they're not what they think they are. And even if it means to fall into some sins, at least by falling into sins, the person will then notice that they're not what they think they are and repent and become humble. Therefore, it is healthy spiritually to be in the mud. Like Christians should look at themselves as being in the mud. What does that mean? In the mud means that their thoughts they can't control and their mouths they can't control and they judge people or they, um, uh, they can't control their food or they're lazy, they don't get up to pray properly, they don't read properly, they're slack, they go to church, they're thinking about other things in church. And if a person has that and lets out a sigh and says, God, have mercy on me, like, forgive me, help me because I'm completely out of it, the Pharisee and the publican, as we know from that parable, that prayer, it penetrates through to the heavens. That is the safest for us, to be in the mud, but struggling in the mud. Like, in other words, don't just sit there like a dummy, but you've got to be doing things, like trying. Don't just say, oh, I can't get up and pray and just sit. 
Struggle, try. You fail one morning, get up the next morning. Force yourself. You know, force yourself to fast. Force yourself to pray. Those people I've got no problems with. They're safe. But the ones that are like um, computers, like the same computers that we look at, computerized, that everything is in, is, you know, I'm going to do it. That time I do my... I once met a person in Melbourne, a very interesting person, uh, which I went, went and stayed at his house. He, he won't mind me telling him because I'll send him the tape anyway, so I'm not talking behind his back. Um, this person, I went to his place as a layperson, and he was telling me, at 8 o'clock I get up, then I read Psalm 50, and then I do 20 prostrations, and then I read this, and then I read a bit of Life of Saint, then I have my breakfast, and then I do this, and then I do that. And he had all this, this uh, order of what he does. And he was reading really deep monastic books. I said to him, um, as a lay, I was only a lay person, but I said to him, look, you, those things that you're doing, you know, I'm sorry, but it's like this deception. You've got to be careful. You can lose yourself. You can go crazy. Anyway, I stayed at his place and then I left. Later on, I found out that he was going around and telling people, guys, he's a heretic. He's against the Holy Fathers. He's against monasticism. He's against, I don't know what he said about me. He said all those things. And um, even though we did start to talk later on, it was not, it was uh, 20 years later. We used to talk, but maybe he still thought I was a heretic. I don't know. 20 years later, he rang me up one day and he goes, you're right. You're right with what you told me. He goes, I was in deception and the books that I was reading has damaged me spiritually so much that I find it hard now to do hardly any prayer, if at all. I find it hard. He doesn't fast hardly at all, if at all. He can't hardly read. He can't do anything, which is what happens usually when you fall into deception. And I said to him, well, now we can be united. Now I can feel close to you. But before, when people do that type of life, a lot of times they're elated. You know, they're flying high and they're too high for us. And they look down at everyone and they think that everyone is, um, to them is nothing because they can do prayers. So what am I saying? Does that mean that everyone has to be like that? In the world, yes. If you find that everything's a bit too much like clockwork, then maybe you've gone wrong and you've got to be very careful and go to the spiritual father, keep in contact so that God, seeing your humility, will enlighten the spiritual father to enlighten you that something's not right. Humility is necessary. Even if you don't understand much humility, just remember, don't trust yourself. I'm not supposed to trust myself. You don't trust yourselves. Always be careful. Always be worried. Maybe that's a deception. Maybe this feeling that I've got is not from God. Maybe it's from the demons. Maybe these thoughts that I've got are not correct. Maybe the, the demons are playing games with me or whatever. Or maybe it's just my madness because we all have madness as well. We all, have, we all in some ways have mental problems as well, which is a product of society. Father Seraphim Rose says that in today's world, a mental illness is, is rampant and actually it's very humbling and beneficial. Mental illness is beneficial. Why? You know how many people suffer from mental illnesses? Uh, some more, some less. But I tell you, 
Everyone suffers from mental illness to some degree. Why is it beneficial? Because it gives humility. When you're worried about you're going to touch something, you've got to wash your hand, or when you're worried that someone's talking about you, or when you've got all these other neuroses that, that exist and other uh, problems, people that are scared to go to shopping centres, people that are scared to catch buses, there might be people that are scared of um, certain animals, people that are scared of people. There's all these anxieties, phobias, depressions. So many different types of mental illness exist. But Father Seraphim says... That is the way that the Christians in the last days will be saved through mental illnesses. That's Father Paisios, the saint from Mount Athos, where we have a lot of his books at the back. He said there are three things which people that came to him had, three main problems. One, mental illness. Two, divorce, marital problems. Three, cancer. Those are the three things that he said that people that were coming to him for advice, and he had people coming from all over the world to him. That's the main three topics. Mental illness, divorce, marital problems, and um, cancer. They are the three main things which God allows to happen to humble us. Sometimes our pride is great, and even maybe sometimes even a divorce will humble us so that we can wake up. Not all divorces occur because of pride. Some divorces occur for other reasons for, to do with the other partner. I'm not saying. In general, those things can be quite um, also beneficial and humbling. Cancer is very beneficial because it brings us to think about... I often think to myself, at this moment in hospitals all over Sydney, for example, there are people dying of cancer. At this moment, they know they're dying. And I think to myself, what are those people thinking? What are those people actually thinking? And what I think is that a lot of them, what are they going to think about? Who's going to win the next Australian American Idol? Or who's, who, how many goals did um, Miss Rice get? Or all these things. They're not interested in those things. What are, they, what are they thinking about? Maybe they're thinking about their sins. But I tell you, a lot of them are thinking about the next life. They're thinking about salvation. See, it's good. That means it's good. Saint Natalia had focus. She, she was focused on salvation. Therefore, she cared about her husband, who was a pagan, yes. But she loved him and she focused on his salvation. And you might say, well, how can she love a pagan? How can she be a Christian and love a pagan? Well, I didn't know. We are, are we supposed to only love Christians? I didn't know that. I thought we were supposed to love, love everyone. So her prayers converted him, and the example of the martyrs converted him. Someone went to her and told her that her husband was in jail and that he was uh, being condemned to torture. At first she was quite upset and she was wondering why. Why are they going to do that to my husband? And then um, when she found out that it was because he believed in Christ, she became happy. She rejoiced and she says, 
what an honor it is that my husband, he who I am one with, remember we said in the previous talks that when you get married, you become one with your spouse, one flesh, as this person is going to become a martyr. And she was excited about it and she was happy about it because she knew that through that, he will find salvation. That's what she cared about. The salvation of the soul of her husband. Not that he was only 20, they only married 13 months. 13 months they were married. He was a young man, probably a young, handsome man, a strong man. She was a young woman. They had everything going for him. And he was a, had a high position. He could have made himself up higher, higher, higher under the um, emperor. But that didn't worry her. You see, this is what we talk about. We, we preoccupy ourselves with jobs and money and houses and education and all these things. It's no, there's no worry. I mean, you can do that. But when that is the, the cream de la cream, when that is all we think about, is our children's education and what schools we're going to send our children to, what they're going to get in the HSC and what they're going to get, you know, what university course they're going to do, as if everyone has to go to university. I often wonder to myself, if everyone goes to university, who's going to unplug our toilets? I mean, who's going to do other works? And why? Is, the, is, is people who don't get university degrees less? This is what I'm saying. This is a communist stupidity where everyone has to be equal. So they're saying... Everyone has to go to college. In America, they've got that mentality. Everyone has to go to college. Well, if everyone goes to college, which first it's impossible because people don't have the same capabilities. But if, say, if we could go into a fairyland that everyone goes to college, why would then someone go and work in, in uh, Woolworths and pack shelves with a college diploma? It doesn't even make sense. And... And other people, I know a person whose father tried to make him a doctor. The person couldn't even write his name. He was slow. He was a slow learner. I know that was my one of, um, I was a maths teacher, but I was also a slow a teacher of slow learners. That's one of my specialties. And slow learners, some of them are slow. Some of them are underachievers because of emotional problems. Some of them come out of it. But some of them are slow because mentally they just don't have the ability to go. That doesn't mean that they're inferior. How many saints became saints that weren't educated? We don't have to all be educated. We don't have to all be illiterate. We have great saints that were uneducated. We have great saints that were educated. This thing about equality, where St. Nicolai, I told you this before, and I sent this tape to America about a couple of CDs ago, a couple of talks ago, and someone said, oh, you know, how do you say that the church does not believe in equality? Because I've read that the church believes in equality. And I said, no, actually, one great saint, the Serbian saint, it says that God does not promote equality because it would make society just fall down. If everyone was healthy, if everyone was educated at the same level, if everyone had the same amount of money, then this, this, this doesn't make sense. That... The rich, as I said, need the poor. Educated need the uneducated. The uneducated need the educated. The healthy need the, the sick. The sick need the healthy, etc. It all becomes what's called complementary. This thing about that everyone has to be the same is wrong. Now, I missed my point. What was that? Who can remind me what I was saying before? 
Anyone? Ah, thank you for that. Yeah. We become possessed with everything else but salvation. And these become obstructions. Oh, sorry, that fellow. Yeah, his father wanted to make him a doctor. Thanks for that. And he, when I met this person many years ago, he couldn't, his maths level was around first class. And he was 30 years old. And his reading level was about first class as well. Like he basically couldn't read properly, couldn't get, you know, being a maths teacher, I helped him a little bit. And his level, he was able, because before when I said to him, what's a dollar take away? If you gave, if you buy something for 20 cents and it costs, and you give him a dollar, what change do you get? He goes, I don't know. I just put it in my pocket. I don't, I can't work it out. This was a grown person. And then, you know, I taught him a little bit and he learned something, but he's limited. What does he like doing? He loves working as a labourer. He loves being out there and digging and carrying things. That's what he likes doing. But his father wanted to make him into um, a doctor. I mean, maybe he can get a job in Grey's Anatomy and pretend he's a doctor, but to actually say that he's a, a real doctor, I don't think he could do that. So maybe he can make believe he's a doctor, right? But he couldn't do it. So there are different things in life for everyone. We can't all be equal. And we shouldn't be preoccupied to force our children to become things they can't. We can encourage and help. And you should, I mean, I've met parents that when someone, say, when someone says to their kid might say, I want to become a bricklayer. And then the parents just, it's like they're, it's like they just swallowed a glass of vinegar. <laughs> Their faces, like they become so repulsed and they go, a bricklayer, a dirty bricklayer. And just, what, what's wrong with bricklayers? These are honourable jobs. And that child just, uh, you know, that child's not going to be very, uh, anyway, it's not, it's not, that's not healthy. I mix the two together, but it both has sense. One, be occupied with salvation. When you are, it says, seek the kingdom of heaven first and all the rest will come. If you're seeking the kingdom of heaven for yourself, if you're seeking the kingdom of heaven for your husband, if you're seeking the kingdom of heaven for your children, the children for their parents, etc., etc., then God will give the rest to us what jobs or what else or who to marry and what to do, etc., etc. There's no need to um, seek, you know, the university first. Because some parents have got, seek ye the university first and all education will come on you. But that's blasphemy. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and all the rest will come. Others have got, seek first health. And they're preoccupied with gyms and going to the gym and going to... People might say, because the way I look, that I'm prejudiced against it. But some people can be also um, uh, sick and some people... Uh, you know, not everyone that's fat. I could be fat because I eat a lot. I'm not going to tell you the secret. You have to work it out. But some people can be um, fat because they eat a lot and some people can be fat because they are unhealthy. In my opinion, the majority of people that are today have got problems is because they've got health problems. Some women, there's some diseases in women that makes them bloat, that makes them fat. Thyroid, for example, that's a problem which makes people fat and people can't lose weight. But, you know, when you become preoccupied, I, I know this woman that she talks to, goes, all she thinks about is her stomach. 
just preoccupied with her stomach. Goes, oh my stomach, my stomach, my stomach. How about salvation? Oh, my stomach, my stomach. You know, it's all the time is the stomach. Okay, the stomach. What about it? All right, it's big. But you know, does it mean that you that you can't be saved because you've got a big stomach? And this person's been going and she's got a PT and she's personal trainer and she goes and does exercise and this or that. And you know what? She's still got the stomach. She's still got the stomach. You know what? She should, she should first look at the kingdom of heaven, look at her salvation, and not become preoccupied with that. Other women, uh, uh, women and men preoccupied with their face. Their bodies, their muscles, their car, their house, their this, their that. All these things are from the demons. They all are there. And that's what one abbess told me years ago. She said to me, do you know why a lot of people in the world don't um, struggle properly? I go, why? She goes, because they're preoccupied with worldly things, just worldly things. And that's why the monasteries have an easier thing because they have services when you read services every day, and as you heard somebody today in English, the beautiful service of St. Adrian Italian, you're hearing things, and you're reading things. You know, you, you begin to become so much influenced that it changes. Another thing which is important is, this is a little secret which, which will help you, because some of you sometimes really want to do the right thing, but you just get a bit mixed up. You know a dripping tap? I think I've said this, I've said this example before. Have I said this example before? You know a dripping tap? It drips onto, say, um, a rock. Drip, drip, drip. Can that drip affect the rock? No, it's just a drip, just a, just a drop of water. It can't. One drip is not going to make a dent in the cement? No, because the water is, is just water. Our heart, especially when we're living in the world is hard as a rock. It doesn't allow, our hearts are hard, and doesn't allow the Holy Spirit to come in us. It doesn't allow God to come in us to change us, to help us. It's hard because we are preoccupied with a lot of things and our sins and a lot of things. And what I say to people is the following. Like the drip, 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 a drop of water can't do nothing to the rock. However, when that drip goes on for many years, after a while, it makes a bit of a dent into the cement or into the rock. It will, it will affect it slowly, slowly, called erosion. So, the same as our hearts. What we need to do is little things every day, little drips. Drips that might not have, we might not feel that it's affecting us. But a little drip here, a little bit drip, a little bit drip, it will start to pen out. What's a little bit of a drip? Well... One little bit of a drip could be reading the gospel, even that much. Every day, just read a little bit of gospel, a few lines of the gospel. That's one drip in our life. Reading the life of saint. Here and there, just read lives of saints. Doing a little bit of prayer, even a couple of minutes a day. In my old days, as I said, I used to give people in my younger years, being a bit naive, I used to give people prayer rules, that might have been, you know, half an hour long, and I said, well, what's wrong? But it didn't take me long to find out that uh, for people in the world, even half a minute is too much sometimes. And that's why in that pamphlet that I gave you of Father Emilianos, the abbot of Simon Petra, on the, the, the sermon that he did on marriage, 
he actually was saying there, if you can do a little bit of prayer, that's good. If you can't, well, you know, but try and do a little bit if you can. But he was really soft about the prayer. In my younger years, I'd be offended by that. We should be teaching people to pray. Until I really found out that some people, they're so out of it that they can't even get to do much prayer at all. So therefore, even if even a little bit, even three prostrations a day, just do three prostrations, three bows, even if you can't do anything, there's no excuse why we can't go to the morning and go, in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen, and then do three prostrations we go on the ground. One, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Maybe another one, most holy thought could save us, and maybe another one of the saint, our saint or our slava. In my case, I'm named after St. Cosmas. So, St. Cosmas, help me today, help me in my life, help me to find salvation. That's it. Why can't we just do that? If we can't just do that, and that, that's no excuse. That means that there's something wrong. So we force ourselves. Fail one day, try another day, but keep on struggling. That's another little drop. A little bit of fasting. Now, some people say, oh, heresy. You've got to teach to have to fast everything. There are some people in the world that believe and say that you have to, uh, they have, people have to fast everything. One priest I remember, which I had an actual argument with, he was telling pregnant women to be fasting and women that have had one child after another. Like some women had one child and then after three months they got pregnant again. And then after they had that baby, maybe five months later, they got pregnant again. It's three in a row. That's very taxing on the body. This person was saying to the women, I said, don't do that, Father, that's not right, because they become weak. You can't make them fast. And he persisted on making those people fast to a large extent. And I disagreed to that. So we have to be very careful. So for some people that have health issues, even a little bit of a sacrifice all these things are little drips, and you'll be very surprised that after a couple of years, it will really make a difference, and only maybe after a couple of years, you'll actually say, oh, I've actually changed. I've actually got a different idea of things. Just a little bit. Reading, just a little bit every day. It's very, very powerful. And that's what God wants. He wants you to try, not big things. Just little things. Any questions up to that point? Yes. I have a question about the interpretation, but I was just thinking when they um schools or jobs like they take up most of the day, like realistically, and then um like how are people sort of um meant to think about salvation like all the time, like especially you can't, you can't, and you, no, no, I'm saying, yes, good question, and thank you. In the beginning, you can't, because you're not used to it. I remember I told you before, my own example, I listened to music when I was very young, that's it, that's the way, I had older sisters, and having older sisters, they used to play music, so I was brought up with it. So, I mean, I'm, I'll confess something, and some of you might think it's blasphemy, well, try not to burn me at the stake. But if I hear chanting over there, and I hear some of the old music I used to listen to, 
right? I'll click over there straight away. Not the chanting. I have to force myself to listen to that. I have to, I have to really concentrate and try and get the feelings to, because I was not brought up with chanting. I did not go to church. Some of these children went when they were young. So for them, it's easy. As soon as they hear it, they will be softened. It's, it's different. Not for me, because I was not brought up in the church from young. So I'm inclined to that. I can go, say, to a supermarket, and they're playing the radio, and I know what the next song is in the first couple of beats, if it's old ones. It's same as the TV, for example. I've seen people that if they watch TV when they're young, they can look at something, they can become absorbed like this straight away. Straight away. It's very, very easy. But those who didn't have the TV when they were younger would find it hard to even focus, to even uh, be interested in it because it's not in their soul. But, for, you know, that's why I've, I've been with people, even myself. You can walk around Harvey Norman, you know, the, the department store, and I'm with someone else, or, or as I said, myself, and all of a sudden I'm talking, I'm going along, and I'm talking to the person I'm with. I'm going, well, I don't know which fridge I should get because, you know, the monastery, we need this fridge. And all of a sudden, I notice people are looking at me. I go, why are they looking at me? Because they think, oh, man, I'm talking to myself. Because the person I'm with has been, is, is at the TV, over in the TV section, just glued over there. I say, excuse me, come here, you embarrassed me. Over here, I'm looking at the fridge, look at the TV. Why? Because he watched it when he was young, glued. Sometimes it's a bit irritating. So what I'm trying to say is that your question is, we... We do find it hard to focus on spiritual life. That's why I'm a realist. That's why I was said, do a little bit. There's no reason, even if you're going to university, for example, or if you've got a job, or if you've got children, that there's no reason why we cannot find time, as I said, to do three prostrations a day. Unless you've got health problems and you can't do, then do three bows. Or to do a little prep. There's no excuse. Do you have that? I'm not, I'm not asking you this to, to put you down, but I'm just, since you asked the question. Yeah, I was like thinking, um, in terms of like during the day. Now I'm coming to that. A little bit of that, a little bit of reading, it might take a few years, but after a while, the spiritual will start to penetrate our hard hearts such that. If in the day you didn't think about anything, you might have during, say, your university days, you might have um, a thought there, one thought, and then further on a feeling there, and then another time you might think about that. Even that's, that's good. Even that's good. I never thought like this before until dealing with people and through other things that we begin to realise that in God's eyes, even that's good in this day and age where no one thinks about salvation, for someone even to do that, for someone even to wake up and do three prostrations a day and read a little bit of Bible, in God's eyes, that can be greater than a monastic who could be in a monastery where things are easy. That's the, your question before, about three months ago. Ah, there's a prophecy. It said that, Christians of the last days, more reference to monastics, but I mean, if you talk about monastics, imagine for lay people. But Christians of the last days will not be the same as the Christians of before. Spiritual life will not be as part of their life to the extent that they were in the old days. 
And a person who does even the smallest little things in these days with the TV, with the internet, with the media, with the school, with everything aimed at making us go away from God, a person that can even do a little bit, the prophecy says, will be looked at as greater than even the great martyrs like St. George and all those other great saints. That's what the prophecy said. So this is where we get misled. But the demons don't want us to know that. They want us to go hopeless and go, oh, I don't think about religion and I don't think about things, so therefore I'm going to give up, for example. No. Another example, married couples. A married couple who can keep their marriage vows pure. A married couple who do not fall into the sin of adultery in this day and age, in God's eyes is great. It is one of the greatest things because if you look at the television, if you look at the films, if you look at the magazines, everything is geared at adultery. Apart from the young people with the do with the fornication, that's another topic, but let's just say even for them, a young person who can keep himself pure for marriage, in God's eyes, is greater than the ascetics of old because of today the way that society is. That's what we need to know. Little things like that, even though it's not little, but in God's eyes, the as I said before, to keep your marriage pure and not fall into those sins is a great thing. So even that. And even if you're going through the day and you've got thoughts of temptations and saying, well, look, it's on the TV, it's easy, everyone's doing it, my friends. People talk about it all the time, about their affairs or adulteries or this or that, and you even say to yourself, no, I'm not going to betray my wife, I'm not going to betray my husband, I'm not going to give up my salvation for a bit of few minutes of pleasure. I am going to do God's commandments. Just that in God's eyes, is greater than any of the saints of the past because these days the sins are worse and also our souls are more inclined to sin more than any other time. Does that answer your question now? Any other questions? Father John, yes. Uh, thank you for your talk, excellent talk. It's very significant as a priest to be able to tell just that little bit, I think that's the key to growing spiritual. So a couple of footnotes. Uh, Rasputin was called a monk, which is not a monk in the Orthodox Church. He was known to practice uh, uh, the religious ecstatic uh, ceremonies of uh, uh, a group that was called Mystique. Also, people who had seen him said that his eyes had a very strange uh, power and that perhaps it was through hypnotism that he was able to do the things that he did. And also, this year is the 100th anniversary of the repose of St. John the Christ. As I was 1908. Yes. Yes. Yeah, thank you for that. And thanks for the. Um, uh, do, can I just ask, Father, do you deal with people in the world, parishes and things like that? I mean, you deal with. 
Okay. So, therefore, you would, from your experience as a priest after all these years, you would say that that's how it is, even getting people to do a little bit of things Absolutely. and not to expect too much. And have you read the prophecy that people of the, in these difficult times that we live in, even to keep themselves pure or just to lead a spiritual life to the best, yeah. will be counted higher than the great saints of, of the past? That the lay people will be considered like the monks. That's part of the problem, so. mm. Thank you. Sorry, Gregory? So you're confused with why are some compromises looked at as being good and why some compromises looked at as being bad? And why does you're saying why is there some compromise and some don't compromise? I've often thought about that myself. When you read, you have to read a lot of lives of saints and church history to see that there were some times when people did compromise and there were some times when people didn't compromise. Like, for example, Saint Natalia was a Christian. Others around her were giving themselves up and maybe saying, I'm a Christian. She didn't do that. She hid. She hid. Other priests might have compromised not to save themselves but to help others, but it might have been in matters that were not necessarily to deny their faith. There might have been some others. For example, during the Turkish Empire, the Turks had a practice that to become patriarch of Constantinople, you have to pay money. This is forbidden by canons. So what the Turks did to get money is they would say, okay, who's got money can become patriarch. So then someone would pay the money to become patriarch. Then later on, they knock him off and say, no, you now, maybe after a year or whatever, you go. They wanted to say someone else can become patriarch so they can get more money. And a lot of those patriarchs, who one of them is Gregory V, which became a saint, a lot of them were breaking the canons of the church, but they did give in to the compromise of the Turks. Now, they weren't compromising on matters of faith. It wasn't dogmatic. It was a church practice which is wrong, but they felt that for the circumstance that they lived in, they felt that they could compromise on that matter. They weren't doing it for glory for themselves that they want to become patriot, but they wanted to become patriot so they can rule the church to help the Greeks that were under the, the Turks. So there's an example of a compromise. But there's other times we have other saints who didn't compromise. Why some did, why some don't, this is uh, not left for us to understand. For dogmatic issues, we are not to compromise. For example, one bishop went to the Pasha, you know, the Turkish leader, because there were some Greeks that were going to be executed. And he went there to ask for their release. Pasha's in Greek, I don't know how they say it in English, but anyway, the ruler of the Turks of that area. And this bishop said, 
I come to you. Could you please free these Greeks? Don't execute them. And the Pasha said, no, I'm not going to discuss it. You sit down and you're going to eat together with me. So he sat down. It was Friday. I think it was even Good Friday. And the Pasha said, we have lamb today. And he says, no, I'm fasting. He goes, eat or I'll kill him. Eat or I'll kill him. He didn't say eat or I'll kill you. In that case, he would not. He would say, no, I'm not going to eat and die. But he said, eat. If you eat, I'll let them go. And he compromised and he did it out of love for them. And then he went away and repented of his sin of eating on the Friday, even though he was forced. Now, some saints, in a way, hid their faith because they felt that they could help others, like you said before. Others felt that they wanted to confess the faith. And even though the people said, please don't do it because we need you, the saint felt that he wanted to go to be killed. Why some did and why some don't has not really been explained. I don't understand it. Maybe there might be other answers. This is how they felt. This is what they wanted to do. Now, your question is, I'll just use me as an example, even though just so I can have a, a, so you can be more tangible so people can understand. So I'm here and we are living in a time where there's persecution. And you would say, oh, you as a priest are helping many people, correct? I'm trying to help people, so I'm helping people. And then uh, some people come along and say to me, I want you to do something, or if not, we will kill you. And I have a decision to make and say, okay, and people can say, just do it. It's not, it's not dogmatic. It's not a dogmatic issue. They didn't tell me to deny Christ. If they told me to deny Christ, I can't say, I'm going to deny Christ so I can help others. I can't do that, right? Well, I hope I wouldn't do that. But if it's something else, like they might say, um, we want to hold a dance in here or something, in here. God, this is a church. You don't hold dances in here. You let us hold the dance or we'll kill you. And I might say, and the Christians tell me, just let them do it just once because we need you. We need you. And I decide to compromise of that. And I have to repent for my sin of allowing that because I felt maybe I should stay so I can help the Christians. However... If, as many other saints did, some saints compromised, but some saints didn't. And some saints said, no, I am not going to let you use the church hall for satanic dancing, whatever. No. And they go, but we're going to kill you. Then kill me. So they kill me. They kill me. However, we have to understand that even though I'm not around as a person to help, but because I spilt my blood for the truth, because I martyred for Christ, that sometimes more can come out of that than if I was alive to be here and stay. Another example is orphans who lose their mother. We say to ourselves, well, why does God take away their mother? Why did he allow the mother to die early? There's one person in here whose mother died when he was 18 months old. She had five children and she died of cancer. And you say, well, why? Did God allow that to happen? And the answer is, as the Bible says, that God takes care of the orphans himself. Monastics 
for example, say the young boy there wants to become a monk, and he's the only boy in the family, and his father's died, and he goes, "Mum, I want to become a monastic. I'm going to leave." And she goes, "Please don't leave. Stay here." Wait until I die, and then go and become. I need your help. I want you to stay here. Saint John Chrysostom was told that by his mum. His mum said, "Stay. Don't go." And he stayed. And he waited till she died, and then he went and became a monk. While other saints said, "I'm sorry, I am going to follow Christ. Whoever loves mother." Father more than me is not worthy of me, etc., etc. And some saints left their mother and went to the monastery. So who's better, Saint John Chrysostom or the ones that left? Both, because both decided to do what they wanted to do. The one who leaves the mother or their parents, it says that he who becomes a monastic, God will personally take care of the parents that are left behind. He will personally take care of those parents when someone chooses to become monastic. So you see, Gregory, what I'm trying to say is that there are so many factors in the question that you're asking, and I won't be able to answer it in the way that you're hoping for me to give you a a full answer. However, I believe that the answer that I gave, I hope, is enough to let you know that God's ways are very mysterious. And why some people confess, some people don't, some people compromise, some don't, some do this, some I don't know. That's, um, that's what it is. However, if the compromise was a serious compromise, the person who did it, um, a lot of times offers repentance. So, for example, St. Paul of Constantinople during the time when they were smashing and destroying all the icons, he was patriot of Constantinople. He compromised. He kind of went along with those people a bit. He didn't go against them. And later on, he repented. He said, I'm not going to be patriot anymore. He went to a monastery to repent of his sins. Probably he thought to himself, for the good of the church, I will stay as patriot and for the, to help people. That might have been his thought. Did he do it to save himself? Maybe he didn't do it to save himself. He did it for the people, which is what you're trying to say. However, he compromised in that the icons are dogmatic. You can't compromise on matters of dogma. And he compromised to some extent. He repented of that and he became a saint of the Orthodox Church, St. Paul of Constantinople. So all these different things. So it's hard to answer your question in the way that you... But I think the more you read about the church, the more lives of saints you read, the more history you read. For me personally, I feel the more I read, the dumber I feel. The more I read, the, I, I said to myself... There's just, I'm sure Father John will agree. The more you read, the more you look at things, the more you see that you don't know anything. There's just all the time all these exceptions and strange things and how God works in mysterious ways. And it's not black and white. Everything's not black and white. You can't have a rule. Some people do compromise. Some people don't compromise to save themselves, but they think they're going to help the church more. Maybe so, maybe not. It's all um, very much God's judgment. Only when the church writes fully and says, uh, this person compromised in a way that wasn't proper, 
Anathema, for example. The church has done that. That's it. His action is wrong. Sometimes in the ecumenical councils, you read and it says, the action of such and such a bishop was wrong. However, he repented, we forgive him. He can still be a bishop. There's all these different things. It's, it's hard to answer, but your question was good. I thought about that myself. It used to spin me out. And then the more I read, the more I understood that it's just God knows. You can't, you can't know everything about why things happen. Does that... Oh, all the time. The saints, the, when you read the lives of saints, you'll see that they made many mistakes. They made wrong decisions. They, they did some compromises which were very bad as humans. And um, Saint Simeon, the Serbian saint, whose body is incorrupt, he was a king. Simeon, I think. Yeah, Simeon. He, I think he wanted to convert Serbia to Catholicism. I think he even married a Catholic to convert. I'm not sure which one. I think it was Saint Simeon. Anyway, he, con he wanted to convert uh, Serbia to the Catholic Church. And later on, he repented, whatever. And his repentance was so great that God gave him this, this special grace that his body did not decompose. We have other saints that fell into big sins, other saints that were pure, but they made mistakes. It's all different things. No, the saints are not perfect. Only God is perfect. What makes us perfect is our repentance and acknowledging our wrong and asking God for mercy. This is what makes saints. Not thinking that we are without fault and, and that we don't make mistakes. If you have that attitude, not you, but all of us, then we're going to go wrong. We make mistakes continually. The saints make mistakes continually. About the pride, which I forgot to tell you, I remember reading, which completely, completely made my head go around 360 degrees, was that I was reading this life of saint where it said that the saint was in the arena during the Roman Empire times, and he was being tortured by the pagans. While he was being tortured, he had a thought while he was had pain. I mean, they were inflicting pain. And he had a thought of pride that when he dies, that people will venerate him as a saint. And then he lost the grace from his pride. And a lot of times they you'd, later on they would deny and go, oh, oh, I don't believe in Christ, I deny. Things like that. If these people who are being tortured have the ability to actually fall into pride, then how much more for us who a lot of times live in a life where we don't have much suffering? So therefore, in my opinion, we are all open to pride continually. That's why it's important to read the lives of saints because we learn from them and we see all these different things. It's not black and white. Does that help you at all? It's a good question, but I know that, I'm not being negative, I know that you are new to the church to some degree, and you remind me of myself when I first come, not that I know everything now, but when I first came into the church and started reading things, things used to make me confused, sometimes even angry. In the canons, for example, it says, 
um, if a man accidentally causes his wife to have a miscarriage by accidentally hitting the woman while he was asleep, or if the woman turns on her stomach accidentally and smothers the child, according to the canon, strictly speaking, the ancient canons, she's not allowed to commune for one year, and the husband's not allowed to commune as well for a couple of years, and he's not allowed to become a priest because he was the cause of a murder of the child. And, you, and people that read that, and, and I include myself, I couldn't understand it was an accident, I would say to myself. But these canons are not inspired by humans. They're inspired by God. We have to be humble to bow our heads down and accept this as God's word, as being from God. Another one, which I'm going to say, even though it's really um, devastating, and you might say the church is unfair, and I'm going to say it on purpose, and I know that some women's heads are going to go around a lot. Like, not, mine went around once. Theirs are going to go around four or five times now when I, when I say the following. I'm going to say it on purpose so that people can learn, do not reject what the church teaches when it is from God because what's been taught in the holy canons is inspired by God, not made up by man. One of the canons says that a woman who has been violated, you know what violated means? Not through any fault of her own, but she's been violated. Again, she cannot commune for a period of time. And again, when I read that years ago, I couldn't understand, well, what's that got to do with, with, with that fact? But we have to learn to bow down and be not proud demons. We can't be demons because demons want to go against God's law. We can't be demons. We have to be humble and say, if this is what God has ordained, then I will accept it. Even if I don't understand why a woman who's been forcibly raped is to be penanced for a year. I mean, a lot of those canons, they alleviate them now a lot. But these are the canons that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we cannot put our minds above the canons and say, I know best and that God is wrong because then we become demons. And we don't want to become demons because we are denying our salvation. We are closing the doors to salvation. I'm not saying about yourself, all of us, because I used to do that. I've done that. And even now, sometimes I, when I read things, sometimes I do get a bit confused. I don't understand. But what I say to myself is, I don't understand today, but I will understand maybe tomorrow or next year or two years, three or three years' time. God will bring it one day, or maybe he might not. If he doesn't bring it to me, well, it means that it wasn't necessary for me to know. We cannot understand everything. This is a spirit of the world. The world teaches us that we have to know everything. Internet is a powerful tool, and it gives us knowledge, and we are empowered, is what they say. We are empowered by the internet and the world is open to us of all the knowledge that we have. Why? Why do we have to know all those things? Why does the children have to know everything? It's not necessary to know everything. It's satanic to some degree, this thing of wanting to know everything, to understand everything, is not orthodox. We cannot understand everything.
And we have to humble ourselves to know that. I admit that I don't understand a lot of things. I've got no problem with that. It's good for me. If I actually sat there and said to you, okay, ask me questions, I know everything. I know, I've read, I've heard people say, I've read everything and I know so much about orthodoxy and ask me any questions. And I say to them, bye-bye. When someone says something like that, you've got to kind of run out because you're just scared that God will send some type of lightning and just destroy the whole place. That is, that is abominable. And if I did that, if I actually sat here and said to you, ask me the questions and I will tell you the answer, no. I believe the church has answers, but there are some things that God does not want us to know. Remember the example of St. Anthony the Great, the great St. Anthony, who stood on the mountain one day and he looked out and his eyes, his spiritual eyes were opened and he saw all the tricks of the devil, all the traps, all these ways that he tricks the Christians to fall into sin and, and to make Christians go away from God. And St. Anthony's eyes opened up and he saw that in a spiritual way. And he said to himself, oh, there's no chance. There's no chance for someone to be saved with so much temptation. And then God, or an angel, I can't remember the exact story, said to him, that's not your business, St. Anthony. Your business, take care of yourself, obviously pray for whatever. God is the one who looks out for everyone, and he is the one that can help people. What's impossible for man is possible for God. We cannot understand everything. We can't know everything. Huh. Now, we didn't finish the life, but that's okay. We got a lot out of it. The main thing is that she helped her husband to actually die at the end, and she actually said to him before he died, pray for, pray for me that I also be taken because they pagans will make me to marry someone else, and I don't want to join with anyone else. I want to be with you, beautiful. I want to be with you in heaven. They're not married in heaven. Remember, Christ said that. They're not married in heaven. However, they are together in heaven. There's no married couples in heaven as such, but there's love. And husband and wife want to be together. You, the person that you love, actually, one last thing. One thing which really affected me, which made me to come to the church. One thing really bothered me, and I've heard this from other people too, people have told me this, but this has happened to me. When I was thinking one day about life, probably someone was praying for me because we had some relatives that were really into the church and they used to all the time take prosphora to the Orthodox Church and put our names. I believe that if if I changed and my mother changed, etc., that a lot of that came from prayers for others. Prayers are very important. St. Natalie prayed for her husband, changed. Praying for others is very important. And I believe that. Anyway, that, that was, I believe, from them. And I had a thought. And I said, what is the purpose of life? And if life ends, because I didn't even know about the soul, if life ends, 
then what's the point of our relationship with our parents if it ends? Or if you get married and you're married to someone and then you die and it's all over, then to me that couldn't, I didn't understand what's the point of getting married. Well, what's the point of parents? What's the point of anything? I couldn't understand that. And I think that question that I asked, later on God gave the answer and helped me to understand that there is the salvation of the soul, which I didn't even know. I didn't even know about that. And from understanding that we are here on earth to be saved and that life continues in the, in the next life and that we can be together with our parents or our husbands or our wives or those who we love then to me that made sense. Then to me that made sense because if you don't have the next life, then on earth it's all worthless. I mean, okay, maybe you'll have a statue if you become famous. Maybe you might, someone might write your name in, the, in a book, Guinness Book of Records, maybe that you ate, you know, 50,000 cans of tomato soup or something. I mean, that's just worthless. <laughs> really, it's such a fantastic thing that you could eat so much tomato soup. It's worthy for you to go there, but to me it's worthless because when the earth goes, statues go, records go, gold medals go, degrees go, everything goes, nothing's left except for one thing, the life after. And unless we have that as our aim, then it's worthless. To me, there's no point of life on earth if there's no life, there's no better life, there's no eternal life. I mean, that's um, the end of the talk. Was there any just last question? Vladimir. Is it a hard question like Gregory's ones? Because Gregory's was a bit hard. <laughs> Prayers for a spouse who's not orthodox? Well, today, today's present is, is this it? Last time I gave you a prayer for one seeking a spouse. That does not apply to you, but it applies to others, because you're already married. Then we, we made a prayer with God's help for you today. It's called Prayer of Spouses for Each Other, a Prayer of the Married. So that one there you can take home. It's laminated. Have it at your icon corner and you can pray. I suppose that the prayer here would apply to someone who's non-orthodox. Non Is that what you're asking? I think just what I said, to, what I said today, a little bit of prayer, uh, together as a couple... Praying together is the most powerful thing. A couple to pray together, even three, four minutes together, is a very powerful. And also reading the gospel together, reading the life of saint together, discussing spiritual matters and caring for each other's souls is the most powerful thing of them all. That's the blessed life. That's a blessed marriage. Uh, not a marriage without problems. Doesn't mean you're not going to fight. Doesn't mean you're not going to hate each other at times. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have all these problems. But... If you've got that as a basis to your married life, then you're already um, there just about. Just to care for each other's souls, to 
pray together, read together, forgive each other, is powerful. Those who don't do that really not, have got not a very good marriage. It becomes all difficult. Does that, does that answer your question? Don't expect the hard heart to go straight away. As I said earlier, and what Father John said at the back, is just do a little bit every day, and it will take a number of years, but it doesn't matter, because that slow, slow thing, little bit, constantly, will then soften the heart. But when we have this expectation to try and soften it and have tears and, and have all these feelings of repentance and all these great things, you don't get that straight away, especially in our day and age. Little bit by little bit, little bit every day. That's it on that? Um, okay, so today I will give you all an icon of Saints Adrian and Natalie to take home. And then there's these prayers, and there are Gospels which you're welcome to take, whoever wants the New Testament, or take it for someone else. There's the book on married life, which is an excellent book. Most of you have got it, but some of you didn't get it. You're welcome to have that. There's all pamphlets over there. There's also an Akathist to Christ for a loved one who has fallen asleep. That's excellent as well. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord, save us. Amen.